So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Psalm 23. There are only six short verses, which we're going to go through verse by verse, and then we will apply these verses in our lives as Christians. What does that mean to us for as Christians? So Psalm 23, I will read from verse 1 through 6, the whole psalm. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this amazing word. This is your word. It tells us who you are and who we are in you. Lord, I pray that through your word this morning, that you would convict hearts, that they would know that outside of you, there is only indeed death, but only in you, we have safety. We have reconciliation from the wrath to come because you are a just and a holy God, but you have made a way. You have made a way for us sinners to be reconciled to your majesty, for us to be called children of God. So, Lord, I pray that you use this psalm in the the life of every believer, even here today. That you would remind them of your promises, of your kindness toward us, and your love for your people. We thank you, God, for this time that we have set aside to hear your word, and to apply it to our lives. I pray, God, that you would use this vessel of clay to proclaim the amazing, imperishable, eternal word of God. Lord, I pray that you speak, not I. I pray, Lord, that your people will hear your words, not mine. Have your way, Lord, in our midst. May we glorify you. May we leave this gathering worshiping you, thinking of your magnificence, what you have done for us. May, Lord, may we live a life of exaltation, a life of worship, a life given wholly to you, that we would know what you have done for us, that we would forsake our old ways, that we would turn from our wicked ways, from our sinful ways, from our ways. And we would trust in our one and only shepherd, the shepherd over our souls, the head of the church, the savior of men. I thank you, Lord, for this time together. May you be glorified in our midst this morning. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Praise God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is, by the way, this is a very important psalm. This is a psalm that you heard of it in movies. I'm sure you've heard any thriller or even a drama movie. You would, you would hear this psalm, especially this verse, verse 4. Even though I walk, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You heard this in, in, in horror movies, probably. <laughs> you heard this in the funerals. Um, this is one of the most famous psalms. Even those who do not know God know this psalm. Those who have no relationship with the Bible have heard this psalm at some point. That's why we call this psalm the pearl of psalms. It is a beauty. It is a gospel psalm indeed. And so this psalmist of ours, the psalmist David, penned the psalm in a beautiful way with metaphors that we will unpack now that you will see our good shepherd, our savior through and through. It is amazing that David, through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he was able to know who is indeed the Lord, who is Yahweh. The covenant that he has made with his people, Israel, is the same covenant of grace that we now celebrate in Christ. He saw dimly what we saw more clearly today. And so we have a greater appreciation of the psalm that David himself penned because we can see the ultimate uh, fulfillment of the covenant of God that he has made with his people Israel. And so let's now begin to unpack this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. See, this word shepherd is a very famous word that is used throughout the Old Testament and the New. But in the ancient Near East, I want you to know this. This is really, really interesting. In the ancient Near East, the concept of shepherd is not a foreign concept to Israel. It's not unique to Israel, I would want it to say, that all kings in the ancient Near East would use this metaphor as a metaphor of kingship, that the king is being shown in his benevolence, in his love, in his sovereignty over his people in this portrayal of shepherd. And so what we have in the Old Testament usage is that an appropriation of this concept that they understood to God, who is indeed the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the shepherd of all shepherds, God himself, and his name is I am who I am, Yahweh. And so God, who, who is known by name, that shepherd is taking care of his people. And so the way he uses this word in the Lord is my shepherd, he uses it in a, as a creedal statement, in a creedal-like language. The Lord is my shepherd. The image here, you start to understand that this shepherd is his shepherd over a herd of sheep, over a collective of sheep, not just a singular person. A shepherd tends to have a herd. He takes care of a herd. And similarly, David understands that the shepherd, he's a shepherd of Israel collectively. But the way he employs this creedal statement beautifully 
he intensifies the usage by putting the Lord who is shepherd over Israel is my shepherd. He is my personal shepherd. Yes, he is the shepherd over Israel, but he is mine. He is my Lord. He is my shepherd. He intensifies the usage by making it instead of it's for everybody, but he is mine. He is my Lord. He is my shepherd. And another thing that you want to understand from this image is that a shepherd who has a sheep is always caring for the sheep. And so there's this idea that there's a destination where the shepherd is taking the sheep from one place to another as they graze, as he protects them, as he walks with them into a desirable destination. And so you have this concept that the shepherd, not only taking them to a desirable destination, but throughout the journey, the shepherd is taking care of the well-being of the sheep. He will protect the sheep. He will provide for the sheep. And that's the concept he mentioned in the second phrase of provision. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I do not need anything because my Lord, my shepherd will provide for me all that I need. I will lack nothing. You see, the sheep don't know where to go. The sheep could literally be in a place where they can eat and drink and live a peaceful life. And they would just simply wander off, do their thing. They can fall on what they call cast sheep. Basically, a sheep uh, could fall on its back. And when it falls on its back, it is helpless. It cannot help itself to get up, to protect itself. And so in, 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 in the sheep's stupidity, it, it just basically grazes off and it goes off into the wilderness where there are ferocious wolves that can devour them. They can stray away from the herd and do their own thing. They tend to do that. And so without the shepherd to take care of the sheep, the sheep is lost. The sheep cannot provide for themselves the sheep will end up dead. You see, Isaiah 53. Why don't you turn there? Isaiah 53, verse 6. It's a very famous verse. Here's, here we read Isaiah saying, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him Christ the iniquity of us all. Look at that first part of the verse. All of us are like sheep. He's talking here, but specifically about his people, Israel, but also um, in Romans, Paul appropriates the same passage, excuse me, the same verse on, uh, on those who do not know God, just have gone astray. We have done our own thing. We have turned from God. We don't want God. What we want, we want to do do everything my way. I don't want a God over me. I think, just like a sheep, I am okay without the shepherd. I can walk away and I can find pasture. I can find a place where I can rest. I will be okay. But the sheep doesn't know 
that the, the very life is on the line. Look at the second verse. So he's, when he says, I shall not want, the rest of these verses, by the way, as he continues in this metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep, he's saying, here's why I will not need anything. Here's why. I shall not want. Why? Why, why David, don't you, you think that you do not need anything? He continues with this metaphor in verse 2. He says, he, the Lord, that shepherd, the good shepherd, he makes me lie down in green pastures. So he knows he can graze in pastures. He can find provision for himself. He's able to live. He leads me because I can go astray. That good shepherd leads me beside still waters or quiet waters, waters where I can rest, where I can refresh my soul. And so you have this picture of provision that God will provide for his people, that this good shepherd is going to give his people what they need in the time that they need it. And so he makes them lie. He takes care of them. He takes them down and he picks them back up. He leads them beside the water where they can go and graze and drink and be merry and be safe. Verse three, he says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. This word restore, restores is the same word we saw earlier. If you are with us in, in, um, in Wednesday night devotions, we, uh, we saw he revives my soul in Psalm 19. And so this word uh, uh, shove is actually turn back. He makes me turn back. It very has similar concept of repentance to turn back. Even though I'm going astray, I'm going to the wilderness, I'm going to my death. He makes me turn back. He restores my soul. And in turning back, according to Psalm 19, he revives my soul. He gives me life. In this turning, I find my life, not death. So I turn from death and my soul is restored to the shepherd of my soul. The second phrase, he leads me in paths of of righteousness. You see, this word righteousness is important. By the way, it's important in Old Testament theology. It is the Hebrew word tzaddik. And it's the same word we see in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Please turn there. This is a, a significant verse. In Genesis chapter 15, you have God's covenant with Abraham, where he makes this covenant. He graciously, unilaterally reveals himself to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. And in verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as tzaddik, as tzaddikah, exactly the word here in the manuscript, as a righteousness. And so by faith, he kept the law. By faith, he was made right with God. And this is the same word we find here. He leads me. He's the one who brings me to a path 
where there is righteousness. He turns my soul from the wicked ways, from the way of death. And so he does that, not me. And I know the ways of righteousness through faith. Righteousness is before me and he shows me what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is wicked. And so you have this continuation for his name's sake. Now, some commentators would say he leads me for his name's sake. So him leading me into paths of righteousness is for his own glory. Another commentators would say, well, the paths of righteousness that are before me, I do these righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. You see the difference? So we can put it this way. I mean, it depends on the translation. The NLT would make it sound like he leads me in the path of righteousness. These paths of righteousness that is before me, I do these righteous acts or righteousness. I have faith for his name's sake. That's the way the translators have interpreted it. I would prefer he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. For his name's sake, he leads me. He does this for his own glory. Let's look at this famous verse that everybody knows. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is a very, very key verse. And every time believers and non-believers alike utilize this verse sometimes rightly sometimes wrongly and hopefully now as we explain this you will understand the right usage of this verse even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death this 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 we continue by the way with the same metaphor we're still sheep right he's still the shepherd and there's this concept that depending on the season the shepherd will take his sheep grazing on the highlands. But sometimes, depending on the season, he will take the sheep, the herd, into the valleys. Wherever, depending on the season, wherever there is pasture, wherever there is water, he will take them there. Now, it's very important to understand the geography of uh, Palestine. Now, there are these valleys and these shadowy valleys. It, you have this picture of uncertainty. And in these shadows... They lurk these animals who are waiting to devour the sheep. And so as the shepherd walks with the sheep, the sheep, he, should, he wants to make them not wander to the right or to the left, walking in these paths of life. And all these shadowy figures and all these shadows, all these animals who lurk in the shadows, in the darkness, as they try to hunt for their prey, the role of the shepherd is to look out. See, the sheep don't look out. The shepherd oversees. The shepherd is sober-minded. The shepherd is alert. And he's taking care of them. He defends them. And we're going to see how he does this with his rod and staff. And so as they walk in these shadowy places as they ought to go through these valleys in order to reach a place where there's provision. They go through ways of darkness. And this, these 
moments and times of trial and wilderness, if you will. And that danger is lurking over in these shadowy areas. Now, this phrase, the shadow of death, is used many times in scripture. It could be used as the valley of deep darkness. We're going to see this in Jeremiah, the valley of deep darkness or the wilderness where there's deep darkness. We're going to see also the New Testament uses similar language into uh, uh, in association with the coming of Christ, who is the light of the world. So let's go first to see Jeremiah's usage in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Jeremiah is a famous prophet of Judah, and uh, we all know a lot about the prophet Jeremiah and his book in Lamentations. Jeremiah was a prophet in the, in the um, 6th century BC. He was there before the exile of Judah into Babylon. And he, in fact, lived through the exile. And so he is now condemning Judah for what they have done. And the way he does that, this is very important and is very relevant to the psalm because he is pointing them back. He's saying, well, look, Israel, remember what God had done. Let's read it together and we'll see uh, what he's pointing towards and what they have done, what they have forsaken, how they have forsaken their shepherd for shepherds that do not actually give provision. Fake shepherds, uh, hirelings, they're not the true shepherd. See, the true shepherd takes care of his sheep. The hireling abandons his sheep whenever there is a shadow of death, when there is ever a, um, a danger on his life, he doesn't lay his life down for the sheep. He runs away. And so Jeremiah, in this passage, you will see, he pleads with God's people to turn back. Turn back to God because he restores your soul. He will lead you in the path of righteousness. Let's, let's read this passage. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me. See, went going astray. What did they do? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness. That's the word here and deep darkness in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits, to enjoy, to, uh, sorry, to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things 
that do not profit. You see, when we abandon the Lord, what happens is that we do our own thing. We twist scripture. Well, that's what happened with these priests that the shepherds that God have put, the priests, the kings, and these prophets. So these are the threefold offices here that Christ fulfills. You have the priesthood in verse 8, the priest who did not say, where is God, did not call uh, Judah to repentance. They did not preach the whole counsel of God. They twist scripture. And the shepherds, those kings, transgressed against me. And those prophets wanted to appease the kings, wanted to do their own things. They wanted to profit out of it. They prophesied by Baal because that's what people wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear the word of God. They don't care to hear for the law of God. What they wanted is they wanted to hear what their itching ears want to hear. And so they went after these worthless things, these idols and these idolatrous practices, going after their own flesh, thinking that there is life in these things. They think that these, there's these worthless fruit, this cursed trees would give them provision that they will be able to live. But in reality, they have uh, exchanged the, plent uh, the plentiful land, the fruit of the good land, and the good shepherd who brought them to this land, and they went after worthless things. They went and they walked into a land of drought, a land of deep darkness where there is ferocious wolves, and they enjoyed it. They thought there is life in a land of the shadow of death. Let's turn now to the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 79. This is a beautiful prophecy by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who prophesied about uh, the first section about Jesus. He reminds, he, in his prayer uh, and his thanksgiving, as, he, as the Lord opened his mouth, he talks in verse 72, if you read quickly. And so Luke chapter 1, verse um, uh, 76 to 79 is what we're going to read. But I want to just point out to the covenant in verse 72 and 73. So through the coming of the Savior, let's look at 71 even actually, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. See, the covenant that God had made with Abraham that was coming to be partially fulfilled in the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and obviously by way of the, the Davidic covenant. All these covenants are pointing to this ultimate fulfillment of a covenant that God shows mercy and fulfills the promises that he promised to Abraham, to, to Moses, and to David. And so he says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
And now he pivots to John the Baptist. And he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give, now pay attention, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what the gospel does. And so when Jesus came into, in the ministry, the beginning of his ministry, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and you see here the fulfillment of, of the prophecies about Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17. Matthew 4, 12 to 17. St. Matthew says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, so he now quotes Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What did this light say? Here we have it in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, turn from your wicked ways, turn from your sins, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the gospel. And so we see this beautiful picture of, of Jesus being, he is the good shepherd. He is the one who turns us, helps us to turn from our wicked ways and helps us to walk in this path of righteousness. Without God, let me be clear, without him, we will go astray. We are hell-bound by our own nature to go to the shadow of death, and we will die. But so he says this, even though we walk and we have troubles and tribulation in this life, the valley of the shadow of death, the trials, the same way that God have walked with our fathers in the wilderness to bring them into this plentiful land. The same way we are walking in this land, we are clothed in sin. We're under the wrath of God. We are under condemnation and just wrath. We are walking dead men and women. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are indeed in the shadow of death. But God had mercy on us. And so for those who are in Christ, those who turn from their ways and have been granted repentance, 
They can pray this prayer. They can worship with David and say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And he says here now, why? He says here, this is the conjunction. He says, for you, the Lord, the shepherd, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, through the rod and through the staff, he can defend his sheep. These are pictures of the shepherd who guides the way, who leads the way, who defends the sheep. And who also disciplines the sheep, right? So the rod and the staff is, is shepherd, pictures of a shepherd who guides the sheep, who cares for the sheep, who disciplines the sheep, and, and also defends the sheep from the ferocious wolves lurking in the, sh- in the shadowy places. Verse five, now he pivots and he turns from this imagery, this picture of the shepherd. And now he gives a new metaphor of a household and a household owner. You, the Lord, is a household owner now. You prepare a table before me. See, uh, always remember, this is a, a Middle Eastern person speaking, David, in, uh, in Israel, and if you know any Middle Easterners, you should know this, generosity is a big thing. And so hospitality is very important. And so you see this picture even with Abraham, when the three angels came to him, he wouldn't let them leave before they had something. And so you prepare a table before me, so you invite me in. He's the one who provides for me. Even though usually it's a a very hard uh, trek, these people were to endure from a place to a place in the wilderness, in the desert in Israel. And so when they come into someone's home, they expect to be seated, to be rested, to be provided for. And so this picture is, is picturing God having this household inviting this person in to this table to provide for them. And he says, in the presence of my enemies, even though they are enemies, he provides for me. Even though there are enemies all around me, he provides for me. See, King David was keenly aware, excuse me, he was keenly aware of this, um, uh, of the danger all around his kingdom. He fought many wars in the name of Yahweh and he won by the grace of Yahweh. And so the Lord has delivered him from many enemies. And so he provided for him. He gave him provision. And in his providence, he delivered him. And so he says this in the second half of the verse. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let's Let's, let's first unpack, you anoint my head with oil. If you turn with me to Leviticus, so we go back to the law. You see, everything has to do with the covenant of God. It's the bedrock of all revelation. If we misunderstand the covenant, if we misunderstand the Pentateuch or the Torah, the five books of Moses, we misunderstand all of scripture. So let's go back to understand what is this concept of anointing with oil? Well, in Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12, 
we see, we read. You, you can turn there if you can turn there quick enough, but I will read the verse for you. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head. He's the high priest, Aaron, and anointed him to consecrate him. And so this, this concept of anointing has to do with a set apart. You have been chosen, right? You are God's elect. You have been elected. You have been chosen and set apart, be, being made holy. That's what holy means, being set apart for a special task. Anointing also has to do with, with empowerment. You have been given the grace to fulfill these special tasks that the Lord has set before you. And so when we say the Lord has anointed us by the Holy Spirit, we are saying we are saved. We have been set holy. We have been chosen by God, set apart for a special task, namely to glorify God and enjoy him forever, according to the Westminster Catechism, right? So uh, we are set apart for that special task. And so as a king, he understood as a shepherd of Israel, David, that, that is, understood that he has been anointed. He has been set apart for the special task. And the symbolism, by the way, is translated in the New Testament in the elements and the parallel in the elements of communion in some sort of way where this we have the symbolism. This is not an exact parallel, let's be honest here. Uh, I want to just show you that this anointing of oil is a symbol of setting apart of something greater. And so the analogy is when we are having the bread and the wine in communion, we are pointing to something greater, to something spiritual, to something significant that actually happened, right? And so the anointing with oil, similarly in that sense, it signifies a, a spiritual reality that that person has been set aside, have been anointed for a special task. And so he says, my cup overflows. And you see this, this is uh, in the Old Testament, we see a cup of blessing and a cup of wrath. And so uh, I don't want to get back into the Old Covenant just for the sake of time. Let's jump directly to the New Testament. And we see this cup that God have given his people. Um, uh, let's, let's first, we go to uh, the gospel of Mark, shall we? The gospel of Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And you see here, how did the cup of blessing that overflows in the life of David is dependent on the covenant that God had made with him. And through faith, the righteousness of God has been given to him. And so the righteous, and he, that's why he understood that. And he understood, although he deserves wrath, he received mercy. And so similarly, in the same way, uh, Christ have taken the cup of wrath that we deserve. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, we remember this passage vividly. We know this. We taught it in, uh, in uh, Sunday school. Uh, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Gospel of Mark, um, verse 36, and he says this, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not 
what I will, but what you will. See, this cup that he was about to take is the cup of judgment, of wrath, that you and I should take. Deservedly so. But in his mercy, God have turned that cup on himself. He provided his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to, to, uh, to exhaust the wrath of God, to drink holy this cup of wrath, the cup of curses that is on us according to the law and fulfilled the righteousness of the law in order for us first that he would be the substitutionary atonement, which means taking the punishment that we deserve, taking the curses that we deserve. Cursed is the one who was hanged on the tree where Jesus was cursed in our stead according to the law. And so he took this whole cup of wrath, all of it exhaustively for his people. And he's the, the cup, the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. And thus we celebrate the communion. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 to 17. Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood, is, not, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the blood, in the body of Christ? So you have the blood and the body. So he's asking rhetorical questions here. Is it not when we do these things, we participate in the blood and the body of Christ. So in verse 17, he says, this is the, so in verse 16, he says, this is the cup of blessing. And as a result of this blessing, in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake in this one bread. Okay, this is verse 16 and 17 in, in 1 Corinthians. So you see the picture of the cup of blessing. We have the blessing through Christ. We are saved from our transgressions. Now let's go back to Psalm 23. And so he says, my cup overflows. This, this cup of blessing overflows into eternity. I am blessed by God. He has given me enough to praise him forever. And so he says in verse 6, this is a doxology, if you will, as he closes off the psalm of praise and trust in God. There's absolutely no doubt, by the way, if you read the psalm, Psalm 23, a lot of psalms, you see expressions of doubt, expressions of returning back to God. He remembers God's covenant, and then he praises God, and then he doubts, God, are you going to help me? Come help me. You see, this psalm, there's absolutely no doubt. It's clear to him. And so he says in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Indeed, the Lord is good to me, David says. And he uses this word mercy, which uh, could be translated uh, ever uh, uh, steadfast love. Loyalty. It's chesed in Hebrew, which means loyalty, faithfulness, but usually it's translated in the context of the Old Testament as 
uh, faithfulness, steadfast love. We praise the Lord for a steadfast love endures forever. And so he says, surely goodness and his steadfast love, which is covenantal language here, shall follow me. Meaning that the Lord God will always be faithful. He will never relent. He will never let me go. He will never leave me to go astray and go to my death. He will always be there. So his goodness and his steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. Not only in this life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the gospel of John, turn here, we're going to, I'm closing now. In the gospel of John, chapter 14, we read in uh, gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. Jesus says this, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, I will come again, and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, doubting Thomas, we know him, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is our good shepherd. He is the one who leads us in the path of righteousness. He is the one who rescued our, our, our souls. And so we can understand what the psalmist is saying because surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to close with this and we'll pray. Go to Romans chapter 8. It's my favorite, favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Paul in in Romans chapter 8 from the middle of the chapter talks about that all of creation groans for this renewal, for that God when he comes back and he rescues and he takes back his people. I want to pick up from verse, um, uh, verse 28 to the end of the chapter. Okay, Romans 8 verse 28 to the end of the chapter. And you see, this is the, by the way, a very similar, this is our Psalm 23 in the New Testament. This passage from 28 till the end of this, uh, of uh, Romans 8 in verse um, 39 is our Psalm 23. And you will see everything we said, you will see it right here. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, he set apart. You see, he set apart those whom he chose. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will provide for us. Paul is saying, he continues in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We are Christ's sheep. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our good shepherd took on the cup of wrath that we deserve and give us a cup of blessing that overflows so we can sing surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever if you do not know Christ you need to turn from your sins right now Today is a day of your salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. What is on you right now, my friend, is the cup of wrath that you deserve. You're under condemnation. And without you repenting and turning from your wicked ways and trusting in Jesus, you will take the cup of wrath. But God have made a way. While, why should you perish? While God provided a way, turn from your sins, repent, and accept this free gift of salvation through Christ who took on the wrath so he can give you a cup that overflows into eternity, that you will dwell with him. He will give you hope now in times of tribulation and distress, and you will be his forever. And if you are Christ's child, if you are one of Christ's sheep, you know that he's a good shepherd who died for our sins. And so no matter what happens in the season of life as Christians, as we go and endure for the sake of Christ, for his name's sake, the path of righteousness that he has set before us, we should run the race because he has run it before us and he is with us. 
He will never forsake us because he is our good shepherd who will be with us. And for that, we rejoice and we say hallelujah. You're going through a hard time? Well, sing with me, brother. Sing with me, sister. Know that the surely goodness and mercy will be with you for the rest of your days in this life. God has given you everything that heaven can give. God gave you his son. And in that we rejoice because God is good and his mercy and his steadfast love endures forever. We are saved, beloved, of Christ. We are saved. And we are Christ. And he's our good shepherd. So let's trust him. Let's love him. Let's sacrifice our life for him. For he is good. And he is worthy. And he has done it all. It is finished. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Indeed, you are good. We praise you, Lord, for your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, I pray those who do not know you would now turn from their ways and they would trust in you, they would repent and they would trust in the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. We thank you, Lord, because this is an amazing news. This is good news. This is what binds our wounds. This is the healing for our souls. This is the purpose for our lives. This is what, why we're made, why we're created to glorify you, Lord. To bless you, to enjoy you, to live forever with you, to be reconciled to the creator and the savior of our souls. Lord, I pray that we would never be distracted, that we would trust in you wholly and we would give our lives as a sacrifice because you have done it before us. You have showed us the way. You have given us the best gift. You've given us the gift of repentance and faith. So Lord, nothing else we can ask for, nothing else we can do, but we can live for you and enjoy you forever. I pray all these things in the name that is above every name, the one who came and the one who is and the one who will come back to take his own people. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Amen.